it's a hard process and i would also argue that many goals are more artificial than they are real or which makes it even harder uh you know if you don't if you don't have a goal your team won't know what they're actually supposed to do if you do have a goal uh your team will do everything they can to reach that goal and for better for better and for worse for both of these things hi and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, Chief Product Officer of GTM Hub. GTM Hub is the world's most powerful platform for objectives and key results, or OKRs. In concept, OKRs are easy to understand, but challenging to execute. Until now, check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. Matthias Meyer is an engineer turned founder, former CEO at Travis CI and CTO at Reaction Commerce. He worked both on the organization and himself to grow as a leader. He's failed and learned a bunch along the way. He's got a curious mind and enjoys digging into organizational behaviors. And nowadays, he's a fermentation enthusiast, making hot sauce and kimchi in his spare time while working on a book on building intentional organizations. In this episode, we discuss how a simple process, architectural decision records, created the space for his engineering team to make and document decisions, what it means to debug an organization, how to approach OKRs via an evolutionary approach, from not tracking anything to tracking KPIs as the first step, why he favors longer-term goal setting, and advice he'd give engineering leaders, and more. Let's jump in. Thank you so much for being on the show, Matthias. I'm like really stoked because we have been friends for a long time. So thanks for being on Dreams with Deadlines. Well, thank you for having me, Jamie. This certainly feels like uh, one of many conversations that we've had throughout the last, I don't know how many years. So it's an honor to be here and have this session recorded and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Can you share a bit with our listeners about your journey? My journey, okay. Well, I'm Matthias, I live in Berlin. Uh, I'm German by by nature, lived in Berlin for 37 years, uh, grew up in East Germany for a while, and then, you know, that ended, and then just kept on living in Berlin. For my career, I started out as an engineer, that's basically what I studied, uh, what my degree is, so my degree is really about digital media, which meant I was originally planned on you know building websites doing designs cutting videos working with photoshop but then developed a love for databases and programming and you know you can't see any of this but jenny is making all kinds of faces because this is apparently new to her uh, i i started working full-time in 2003 but only worked as a full-time you know in a full-time job for three years and so in 2006 I went freelance um, because I always preferred independence and just doing my own thing. 2009, co-founded my first business. It was a tool to, uh, a product to automate cloud, cloud infrastructure and deployment, which in 2009 was still very, very early in Germany. People were still very skeptical about cloud and Amazon web services and all of that, but it was still, it was still, it was the first business. Uh, it later got even acquired by Amazon. After that, I worked uh, at a company that uh, called Basho that built a database called React, which I then wrote a book about. This was 2011. Uh, that was my first and so far only book. And then 2012, I co-founded a, uh, another business called Travis CI, which started out here in Berlin. There, I also started out as an engineer, just like with the previous uh, previous company, uh, with focus on infrastructure and making sure that things are up and that they stay up. Sometimes that means I'd have to get up in the middle of the night uh, and go fix whatever is broken. Even like throughout the previous years, I never really thought of myself as a great engineer, uh, software engineer, but I did enjoy and had a certain knack for debugging and fixing production systems. and. It's a skill that comes in very handy as you move into management as an engineer, because you'll spend a lot of time debugging things and need a certain a certain level of patience and curiosity 
over time, I moved into the role of CEO, so leading that company, building out new departments like you know customer success, sales, building an enterprise product, and all these things. The company was almost completely distributed. It did have an office uh, here in Berlin, but most of the staff worked across the globe. And even here in Berlin, there was no need for anyone or a requirement for anyone to come into the office. And what else? Ooh. You were an EIR for a while with me, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we did that at Techstars. Uh, and then you were Reaction CTO for some time too, right? Yeah. I, I was going to get to that. Uh-huh. I didn't was anyway. Uh, I left Travis CI in early 2018. The company got eventually acquired in early 2019. And in 2018, I started a stint together with Ginny as an entrepreneur in residence at a local tech startup program, uh, while at the same time uh, starting a new role as a CTO at Reaction Commerce, uh, a company out of Santa Monica, uh, where I traveled to many times over that course. Uh, offices just by the beach, which is very, it's very nice. I did start working there, not because I loved working, you know, across nine time zones, but mostly after having experienced challenging co-founder relationships, I was just looking for a different way of building a company, a business, and a different way of maintaining relationships first and foremost with the people that you work with. Mm. And I did find that in Sarah Reactions as CEO. We considered, you know, our work relationship a partnership and we worked as such. So as my title was CTO, but it was really, I was involved in things all over the business, like the business strategy at first and planning all hands, uh, all hands meeting and meetings in person. And just there's a, there's a whole slew of things, vacation policies, because we're, you know, as Germans, we're very good at vacations. And I did like all of that, that switching focus, because that's what as a co-founder, and CEO, uh, you know, of a growing company, you tend to do, you move on, you know, you focus on one thing and three months later, you focus on something completely different. The uh, reaction eventually got acquired in May, 2020, which is also when I left the company and all these businesses have one thing in common. Uh, they focus on developer experience and developer tooling, which is what I've always been caring about, uh, having worked with terrible and with good tooling over the years and. It's been an interest for me uh, for a long time now. And I still today talk to startups uh, who, who operate in that space. And Sarah and I were now working on a book together to share our experience uh, in building a different kind of company, a different kind of business, to share our experience of working together uh, and of just building a different kind of company. And besides writing a book, right now I'm coaching engineering leaders and also engineering-focused founders through the challenges of growing their teams and also themselves. And to get to the end of my journey, uh, there's also per this was all business and work Matthias. A personal Matthias likes likes to put stuff in jars to ferment them over weeks, bake sourdough loaves, as you know, a lot of people have been doing for the last couple of months. Uh, I cook a lot at home for the family because my wife also works from home. And most recently, I've started taking an interest in gardening and workworking. Very cool. So like your more uh, recent endeavors include speaking with engineering leadership. And you yourself have been a tech leader, a CEO, co-founder, all kinds of stuff. What are some of the chief concerns at the seed level specifically for technology leaders? I think the CTO role can mean a lot of different things to different people. I think to some, it can be... CTO, especially in an earlier stage, is deeply involved in code or focuses on, you know, the product in general, uh, making progress on the product or on architecture or is still deeply involved in code, even in a, in a company that has more than 100 people uh, or building the next versions of the product. Um, I think the, the last uh, the, the, the final option is for that person to focus on management, providing direction uh, and leadership. And that's, that's where I saw myself. I, I think when I started my role as a CTO, I hadn't touched any code for a long time. And I certainly didn't intend to change anything about that because at that point I was more interested in, you know, organizations and teams, relationships, uh, setting directions and just honing, you know, different kinds of leadership skills. And so I was, it was clear to me from the beginning that I wouldn't be 
working on code, submitting you know, late night or weekend pull requests that just confuse people on a Monday morning, which, which I have done as you know, when I was still writing code and or was already carrying the CEO title. And so it's, it was an early learning to just, you know, that you can upset people when you keep, uh, keep touching code. And so I think what I, what I focused more, especially coming from, you know, a long distance, like most of my team at reaction, for example, was eight to nine time zones away from me. The people I work with directly are just really far away. And we have a very small window of overlap where we can actually talk about something, which, you know, is challenging in a management role. And so I try to make use of that time as best as possible by focusing on, on coaching people to, you know, to, to also grow themselves, to acquire new skills, to make their own decisions, which is also not a, a natural thing for, for everyone, to not always defer decisions upwards, but also to just make a decision and move on. And so, you know, for creating an environment where they can learn from those experiences rather than being punished for it, I still ponder today the difference uh, that people see in the word accountability. And I did focus on accountability, but not in a punishment sense, but more as like, so this didn't work out. Why did it not work out? What, what could we do differently? And so I did a lot of that. I also focused on hiring a little bit, but also focused more on coaching people to do the actual hiring than do a lot of it myself. And just providing context. Like I, so the first thing I did coming in was you know, work on a business strategy, which wasn't in place and build an engineering strategy to, to build on top of that and to put, to just codify certain things that people had been talking about, thinking about, but that, you know, they weren't sure, okay, is this now something we're doing? Uh, when, or when are we doing this? And so I was, I just started codifying this and sprinkling, you know, most of the input for the engineering strategy came from the team and not from me, but I just sprinkled a few things on top. So it sounds like when you first worked at Reaction, well, maybe we'll spend some time talking about that because that's your most recent experience. You first joined the organization and it sounds like you observed some things and you knew that there are things that needed to get changed, chiefly strategy or a lack of strategy, both at the business level, I guess you can say the organizational level, as well as for the engineering team. What were some of the other things, if you don't mind sharing, that you had observed that you were like, okay, so this is missing or this is not where it needs to be, this needs to change. Uh, what did you observe and then what did you end up acting upon to cover some of those, I don't know, for lack of a better word, deficiencies? Mm. Okay. I mean, I have a list that's very German. The list, the list is long because I think anybody who comes into an organization at a high level and looks at things will just... You know, there's, you can't freak, you can't freak out. This wasn't the case for me. It wasn't, uh, but I still had a, a mental list also knowing that I could only work through so much of that list. And so one of the, the first thing really I observed was, uh, you know, how meetings were run because I think the first, my very first act as like new CTO in the company was to, you know, be part of a meeting. That was where I was introduced to you know, the leadership team and where I could just observe how they work together. And it was fairly unstructured. Uh, there was always one person facilitating. Uh, there was no clear agenda. Uh, and I was, you know, the, the meeting notes were not really useful. They were, they didn't have, you know, this, this thing where at the end you can say, well, this is what we talked about. Here is you know, description of the problem uh, that we talked about. Here's all the context that we, you know, we, we discussed and that we gathered. And here's a decision that we've made. N none of that existed. And so because that didn't exist, the so a clear, a clear format or documentation for decisions, meetings were not focused on decisions. There were meetings focused on updates. And this is not, you know, this is not a particular thing for reaction. In this case, I think this happens in a lot of companies hmm. where meetings are a great source of frustration for people. And then what I've already mentioned is decision-making processes were pretty unclear and decisions weren't written down. I spent a lot of time looking around, you know, the Google Drive, all of the documents and see, see what I can find there just to get a picture of, you know, where, at least according to the documentation, the company was at, and then, you know, talk to people individually to see if this is actually 
you know, if, if both uh, things are in line, what people tell me and mm. what is documented in these notes. Mm. And then we already talked about strategy. And then this more specific engineering thing was that uh, the reaction is an open source project and it was released every, there was a new release cut every three months. And the engineering team was using, you know, a sprint format to work on new features where the sprints were two weeks, two weeks long. And in addition to all of that, the, this, the releases were always done by hand it was a long process, relatively speaking, and they were always done by one and the same person. And so I think this is like, these are probably the top four things that I noticed in that I think the, the releases bit and the sprints are probably, they trickle down into, you know, into all of the other questions that we, that we'll, we'll probably cover today. You noted all of these things, and it sounds like you worked across the organization in some parts, but maybe we can spend some time talking specifically about engineering, because that's for people who are not engineering team leaders or associated with the team, it's like a magical place where people do stuff and it works online or on our phones, right? Like, what? how do they get there? How did you get the team to understand what needed to happen and then to make changes and to internalize those changes because in business we are always trying to get people to do stuff right it could be we're trying to get the customer to buy something we want our vendors to give us a good deal and if we're leaders or managers we want our employees to take greater initiative that support our customers and the business objectives right and there are good ways to do that and there are not so good ways to do that and it sounds like you i had identified it you know here are some issues the list might be really long. It sounds like it was. Here are the things I'm going to focus on, and I need my team to be on board with that. I'm new. How do I get this to happen? So can you talk through how that that transition happened from the identification of this stuff to translating, here's what's what needs to change so that we can actually do business in a way that's much more efficient and hopefully more effective, right? That's the goal. We want to be efficient. We want to be effective. How do we get there? I'm taking a deep breath because this is a very long and arduous process and uh, requ requires a lot of patience. I mean, sure. you can just go in and this is not an uncommon thing, depending on, you know, what kind of manager you are, uh, how you work or what, you know, where an organization is. Maybe an organization is completely dysfunctional mm. and you just need to go in and give yourself three months to completely transform an engineering team from here to there. This was not the case for me, and I also don't work in a command and control kind of environment. But, you know, conversely that, you know, different approaches take a lot of time. But then, so one situation in particular, I'll focus on a few situations because I'm, it's condensing down a year into a year of this kind of process into a few sentences is quite hard, but I'll try. One situation that actually happened early on and covers one, you know, one thing that I, I noticed that decisions, you know, were not documented and they were, it wasn't clear how they were supposed to be made. And so I, you know, at the time already, the format of architectural decision records was fairly common uh, and people knew about it. And so, but, you know, in the, in the organization at Reaction, you know, engineers were, they had ideas, they had suggestions, they had things that they wanted to put forward and propose, but they didn't know how or where or who they needed to go to, to, you know, get approval. And so I ended up proposing a simple process, which was, you know, for build on architectural decision records. It's really a simple format of what's the problem? What do we know to be true? What's the solution that we would prefer? Or what's the solution? What's the decision that we would like to make to solve that problem and why? And it wasn't more than that. It was, and I wrote that proposal in the same format. So I wrote a description of the problem. I wrote a description of everything I knew about the problem and then what the solution is. And I didn't send this out as, well, here's the thing that we sh were going to do from now on. I actually went on vacation shortly after and just, uh, you know, had shared this proposal, this idea with a few folks. And somehow, you know, when it, somehow it made the rounds when I was on vacation and I came back 
And people had already written proposals following that format. And I was like, wow, that's that's amazing. Like I didn't even have to tell anybody. And I think that the gist here is there was there was a need, you know, that that not just I was seeing that the team was, you know, seeing and experiencing. They were blocked by something. They 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 were blocked by it and they knew that they were blocked by it. But you know, Warren didn't feel like that the space or the you know, were, say, allow, quote unquote, allowed to come up with a solution or just, you know, to make decisions on their own. And so here it was, you know, putting forward this proposal just created a space that people just rushed to fill. And it's like, oh, that's great. So, you know, there's, there's an implied assumption of, well, you know, Matthias is writing this down. So, you know, and he's proposing a format where we can just start making decisions. So we're just going to do that. And so some people started writing up things and it was pretty amazing to see. We, you know, the first draft of the process didn't, you know, cover everything the team needed or for the process to be successful, but we iterated on it. We edited a little bit more process around it, you know, make clear who needs to be involved in decision-making, you know, what kind of feedback people should be seeking out on a proposal and, you know, stuff like that. But this was, you know, all about just suggestion, which, uh, you know, is my preferred approach. And so that, that is the decision record thing. The other, the other piece that I keep thinking back to is the release cycle, the three month, you know, it's a long time. Uh, it's a long time until you get customer feedback on something, or in this case, open source user feedback on something, because you just, you know, every three months you drop something out there. Uh, all the development happened out in the open, but, you know, even for an open source project, not many people will just, you know, pull, pull the latest development version and especially not for an e-commerce platform and just deploy it in production. And that process took a year. So this is why I took a deep breath earlier on because it was, there was a lot involved. The, it took a year to get everything to a place uh, where, you know, not anyone could do a cut a release where that process was documented. This was one of the first things I worked with my, uh, with a direct report on because they were the one who uh, were responsible for for cutting a release and for releasing it, for writing change logs and everything that's involved in that. And so the first thing I did was work with that person to document that process and then maybe to automate it and then to pull, to run through that process with a second person because there was an opening again for this because the same person that was doing the releases was also, you know, experiencing, well, they were managed, they were in management. And so they had a lot of other responsibilities. And so they had to stay up late to cut a release or, you know, or do that on the weekend. And I was like, please, please don't do that. Please don't do stuff on a weekend. Please don't, you know, to cut releases late at night, you need to delegate that to your team. And so there was an opening uh, again, to to start working towards that change from an individual level, and then you know over time it would just start benefiting more of the team because people get more responsibility by uh, you know say a rotating release manager role, and they're all they're part of the process, and I think the the organization wins because a there's more regular releases and b because well there's no bus factor involved or maybe. Anyway, it's not just one individual that everything depends on, which I think is just, you know, common common sense de-risking for a business to to take that responsibility and make it so that more people can do it. Yeah, and it's, it's there were just there were pieces missing over time that we just kept adding like an integration system where, you know, really anything really, the latest development version could be deployed to at any time or will ideally even automatically be deployed to so that you can get customer feedback. And these processes, these things over time, you know, these situated, these needs or this, this space was created over time as we worked deeper with a certain customer. It was, you know, people noticed the frustration that, you know, that they get from only showing the customer something four weeks later and then just hearing from the customer, well, that's not what we wanted. And so there was a little bit of letting people experience the pain before you know, like maybe even letting them fail, not, you know, not standing on the side with glee and saying, I told you so, or I have the solution, but more, you know, providing an opening to talk about it and say, well, 
what if we did this? What if we did this instead? And then just give people time to actually, you know, build this thing, say build an integration environment, create the space for it again, you know, see the, see the rewards over time, actually see, well, I can now, you know, my latest change goes out into, into, to the integration system, whenever it's done or whenever I want to, and I can talk to the customer regularly to get feedback on it. That's pretty amazing. I can actually ship something better. It requires a different level of discipline to actually, you know, ship your code, say, every day or multiple times a week. But, you know, these it's it's a kind of a little bit of a stagger or, you know, a, a step by step thing. You fall, you focus on, you know, different small wins over time, small steps that necessitate more steps or to help people understand that there are more steps involved, that they need to be more disciplined, you know, that they need to have a different approach of uh, how they work on a certain feature, maybe to not let it live in a pull request for you know a month at a time, but rather focus on keeping it short, keeping whatever I'm right, working on today short so I can ship it to production at the end of the day or at the beginning of the next day or whatever. So, wow, that's a lot. Hmm. Yeah, so I can understand why you're like... <sighs> I think figuring out these steps is the hardest part. I and mean, it's not like I had a perfect roadmap at the beginning because, you know, this is where we come back to debugging and being able to debug an organization. Mm. You, you know, at the beginning, you form a hypothesis of what could be wrong. Then you do like one fix at a time. You know, you get do one, you do one experiment and say, well, what if, what happens if I keep dropping uh, the idea of releasing every two weeks? And this is a long feedback cycle. You know, it might take a few weeks until that idea, that seed is planted in people's heads. And then you can see, you know, how, how, how discussions evolve after that. Based on that premise. Yeah. Based on that premise. And then right. you have more information, then you do the next experiment and so on and so forth. And so it's, you know, it's a long and arduous process, but I find it's very rewarding because it's, I don't have to tell anyone to do something specific or how I don't have to dictate how people do it because I don't really, that's not really my concern. You know, I'm concerned with, you know, how often and how regularly can we ship something meaningful to the customer and how quickly can we get feedback from the customer on this and how quickly can we ship something that you know, helps the business? I feel like that's pretty universal. <laughs> like those, those just key, they're just key axioms almost with any, Software company for sure. Now, well, they should be. But, oh, I agree, uh, and that's not necessarily. So, yeah, I yeah, I see where you're going. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's internalized in every software yeah. company and organization, right? That's that's what we're saying here, which is why it's hard. But mm, something that I think you've mentioned to me before is that you you chose to monitor performance using KPI specifically at Reaction. Um, and some questions about that, because, you know, like I work for a company where we talk about OKR. So I'm curious to see if there's any overlap here. What did you try to, well, firstly, like, why did you choose KPIs as you know, the mode of monitoring performance to begin with? Because I'm sure that you review different ways to do that. KPIs are obviously something that uh, are, you know, industry agnostic, like everybody seems to have a set of KPIs that they measure against. Um, but why did you decide to monitor performance and track specifically to KPIs? So I had a previous experience, experience with OKRs and that, you know, there were pains and bruises. And I think the second time around, I just wanted to start with something simpler. And I, you know, that my perception is that KPIs as a framework is simpler than OKRs in detail. It might not actually be the case, but I'm an, you know, I'm a, I'm still an amateur when it comes to these kinds of frameworks, I would say, uh, still uncovering and discovering things. And it's, I mean, the overall goal was to just get, you know, more visibility into different parts of the business and KPIs were at that time, the simplest way we could think of, you know, we, we specified a few metrics, thought a little bit about how they play together and then, you know, ask the team to track them. Uh, that was pretty much the process. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I would still think that it was a worthy experiment, but it, it also didn't work out as, you know, we'd expected. And maybe we, we can go into that, you know, next, but 
the step from I would think the step from zero to KPIs is a little bit shorter than the step from zero to OKRs. But the step from something like KPIs to OKRs is a lot smaller. Like when you already have a thinking in place about what are we trying to achieve? What are we tracking to make sure we're uh, we're focusing on the right things and all of that? I think that step is a lot easier to get from KPIs to OKRs. I think it's more evolutionary than you know we're we're trying a completely new thing going from KPIs and OKRs. I think in a large organization it can certainly feel that way for people, but the thinking in, you know, in metrics and what we're trying to achieve is already there, I would argue. Mm. And so I thought about that. It's like we're starting with something that I perceive to be simpler as K- as than OKRs, but in in depth it turns out KPIs can also be quite confusing, especially when you think about leading and lagging KPIs and just it's uh, it, it took me a while to get into that uh, to get into that mode of thinking about things but i think it's very similar with okrs what metrics did you end up tracking like for example for the engineering team and and then following that like you mentioned that it did not quite produce the results that you had hoped so i'm, I'm curious i'd like to kind of examine that for a bit as well but let's start with the first one which i think is an easier question to answer like what did you actually look at what did you monitor and ask the team to track okay so this is where you know i'll put everything out in the open uh, <laughs> okay i think initially i i looked at you know things like pull request lifetime and how long features were stuck in feature branches i think how and you know i mentioned one indicator how often a release is done you know, it's a very simple one, but you know, one one that interested me is like how many releases have we shipped, uh, say in the last quarter, rather than one. Ideally, we've shipped four, six, or eight. Not much more than that because then it just gets silly for an open source project. I think if you're, you know, a a, a SaaS product, for example, it makes a lot more sense to track deploys per day or deploys per week because you know that's your that's your way of shipping. For us, the way of shipping was, you know, cutting a release. But over time, that changed. Like we had an integration system, and so we could, you know, I wanted to start tracking, you know, how often we deploy to that integration system. But again, the integration system wasn't actually there yet at that point. And so, you know, there were ideas for tracking metrics, like again, like uh, cycle time. Uh, you know, how long does it take from now, how long is a pull request open, for example? How long does it take for a bug report to come in and be fixed, you know, and fixed and deployed in production? How many deploys do we have per day? And how long does it actually take us to fix something that's broken in production? Things like that. These are all from the book Accelerate, which is a high, which I highly recommend. I started looking at these, but at that point, we were, you know, all of the engineering team was was tied up working with a customer and, you know, focusing on, of well, overall, I would say very big release, building a lot of new features from the ground up. And we were, you know, I think the team was, was just starting to get into the mindset of, you know, we need to deploy this regularly. We need to get customer feedback regularly. We need to actually, you know, rather than just ship a release and, you know, wait three months again until we ship bug fixes or something like that. I'm exaggerating here a little bit, but, uh, you know, that's a little bit of the gist of it. Rather than do that, you know, how quickly could we ship book fixes anywhere? And so, you know, to get getting them to that mindset, I didn't really need those metrics, it turns out, which I think is good. But it also led to those metrics you know, dropping off my radar a little bit. I didn't, you know, they were they were set as metrics for the engineering team. But, you know, because we weren't there yet, because we... Uh, because we didn't have the right tooling, uh, because we were all working for a single customer, it wasn't. It didn't feel like the right time, and I was seeing the success, the successes I wanted to see. I was seeing them without the metrics, and so you know whether that's the right or wrong approach, I can't say. Any data-driven person or company would certainly argue. Well, if you don't have the numbers, how can you be sure that you saw them? But I think this is, you know, this is where metrics just get a little bit fuzzy. And one thing I was got actually more interested in over time in tracking was actually none of these, but was really? more, 
looking at a humane metric or a human metric, uh, humane and human, I think it's both in a way. And for example, a release confidence is one that we started looking at because we wanted to release every two weeks, for example, or, you know, the, the initial idea was we release whenever we're confident that we can release, you know, whenever say we have a new feature, it's been tested. Uh, you know, it's, we, we have bug fixes in, they've also been tested and all of that, all the requirements for a new release are met. Quality is right. Performance is right. And all of that, you can track all of these using metrics, of course, but you know, and none of that for me compares to the metrics of asking anyone, how confident are you if we ship the, if we release this today on, you know, in these dimensions, say, how confident are you? that it is up to our quality standards, that it is up to our performance standards, uh, that's up to our testing standards and whatever other standards or things are important to you at that time. And so the survey, you know, that you do for this can be, you know, kind of have different questions over different times, but overall you focus on, you know, how confident are we as a team to, to release this now or release it next week? And if we're not confident about it, what can we do to increase our confidence? What needs to happen? And so then you focus on that. But again, you need to actually create the space for asking these questions, for people to give you honest answers, for you being open to hearing whatever answers they have to, you know, they give you. And then to maybe, you know, shift focus a little bit to actually fix whatever concerns come up. And I think that's the difficult part here. What was the format in which you collected that information and then thought through it with the team and hopefully maybe even tracked it to some degree to see if there were improvements. Like how did you go about making that procedural? Again, it's one of those things that we started relatively late in my in my tenure. And so I don't have a lot of things to report on how successful it was, which is very unfortunate. And, you know, all of these almost failings that I'm talking about here, they're not you know, not things I'm proud of, but they're still, you know, they're still learnings. They're still interesting and valuable experiences. Just, you know, for as a side note, I think those, you know, the the general, say, outcome-focused metrics like cycle time, lead time, deploys per day, or, you know, how long it takes you to fix something. I think they're very meaningful metrics to tell you how how your team is performing, so to speak, and whether they ship something valuable to, you know, something to the customer, but they don't tell you, you know, they don't tell you about the quality of what's being shipped and they don't tell you about whether anything that's shipped is actually of value to the customer. They only increase the chances of your team actually shipping something valuable if everything, if all the other circumstances are right as well. But getting back to the survey, I think it was, I think overall it's, it's a nice addition to to having these, you know, more automated metrics in place because those automated metrics don't tell you, you know, again, about the quality of what you're shipping, about the performance of what you're shipping. You can track all of those things using developer tooling, but again, that might tell you different numbers than what your engineers actually think. And I put a lot of, I put a lot of, uh, value on what my engineers think about, you know, whatever is getting shipped. And so, yeah, we use the survey to track these confidence surveys. And, you know, by focusing on kind of similar uh, dimensions every time, you do get a comparison value over time. But mm. uh, and ideally, you want to see that, you know, increase or decrease how whichever, uh, you know, whatever numerical values you attribute to these things so that you get more confident over time with your releases. But, I, you know, it's also it's an it's an in the moment metric as well. It's, uh, you know, maybe it tells you something, you know, about pride. It gives you some pride that your team has gotten more confident over a year. So that trend can be useful. But, yeah, I don't know. Now that I talk about it, I think it can be very useful. But, but again, you don't want this to be a goal. You just want it to be something that you track and use as a conversation starter. So that's a nice I think segue into thinking about goal setting because that's what we do at GTM Hub is help organizations reach their objectives, right? You mentioned something really interesting there where you're like, this is not a goal. It's something that you should track and be aware of. How do you cut that line or that distinction between this is something that we should track and this is something that we should make as a goal? Because I think a lot of people default to, well, because we can measure it, we should look at it. And because mm -hmm. we can look at it and measure it, maybe we need to improve it. Like there's 
there's a bias toward <laughs> just doing what I guess is easy rather than the hard work of trying to imagine what is it that we actually want to achieve here? What goals should we be placing ahead of ourselves so that we can try to reach them? Can you kind of talk through from a, a tech leader specific perspective on how you make that distinction? And then how do you go about pursuing goal setting with your teams? I think goal setting is a, is a very, it's a hard process. And uh, I would also argue that many goals are more artificial when they are real or mm-hmm. which makes it even harder. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you don't have a goal, your team won't know what they're actually supposed to do. Right. If you do have a goal, uh, your team will do everything they can to reach that goal and for better, for better and for worse for both of these things. So, um, I, I go back and forth on these. Uh, we, we didn't, we didn't have very specific goals on most of the metrics that we had, especially in the engineering side, it's like we, you know, we wanted to ship something meaningful to the customer and what is meaningful. We can just, you know, put in a metric and say, this, well, you know, this, the, the number is one. So this is, you know, extra meaningful. This is great stuff. We, we ship to the customer. You can't, you know, have all of these engineering metrics that we just talked about without having good product management, uh, and without having a good strategy in place or a plan, whatever, whatever it is to, you know, an idea of what that quality or that value looks like that you want to ship to the customer. And you have ways of getting feedback from the customer of whether you're actually on track. And I'm still uncertain. And, you know, maybe this is where I'm still an amateur when it comes to these goals, when, when it comes to, you know, frameworks like OKRs and KPIs, where I'm, I'm personally not entirely sure about the usefulness of having very specific goals, you know, about goals like we need to, uh, say, reduce churn by 0.2% by the end of the quarter. You know, there's a lot you can do to reduce churn. And, you know, at the end, have you have you actually achieved anything meaningful? Have you actually shipped anything useful to the customer? Someone else might argue, well, then you need to track, uh, you know, an NPS score so that you can, you know, get feedback from your, or know that your customers are still happy. But all of these are very lagging. You know, it's like churn is a, is a, is a lagging in the KPI terminology that I learned from you. It's a lagging indicator. Uh, and so is NPS. NPS is probably even more lagging than churn is. And not all, not everyone has an influence on these. And yet, they're still the most common things that we look at. You know, it's like I've done that. I've I've done that. So working with OKRs, we need to reduce churn by some some percentage, so that we can you know increase profits or increase revenue. And I'm. Personally, I'm just not sure how useful it is. And so I, I over time, I shifted my focus more to long, long-term long goals. Mm-hmm. And that's why you know, one of my first things at, in the reaction was to build a, build two different types of strategies. And I mean, Sarah built a third one, which was our, you know, our product strategy, which was, you know, slightly different from the engineering strategy, but they all work together. They were all formed like a little framework that we could use to decide this is where we're actually going. This is kind of our long-term goal and that, you know, you can measure yourself over time. But yeah, I focus a lot more on that, on making sure that there's a long-term, a long-term goal is in place, uh, that a long-term plan is in place and that, you know, the team can work off of that. And of course, adjust along the way. If it turns out that these, whatever assumptions we had going into a strategy or into a plan, if those turn out wrong. And I think the, the only thing you can do to find out if they are is talk to the customer, not just track, you know, a specific score from the customer uh, or track a specific metrics as track a specific metric, but actually talk to the customer and get more qualitative feedback than quantitative, you know, feedback that actually someone needs to look at and actually say, huh, I'm not entirely sure what this customer told us. We, we we need to spend some time going back and actually understand what they were saying to us. I think that's a good place to end before quick fire questions because really the the thought behind it is, you know, make sure that you have an idea of why you exist and what you need to go do. Have a plan, 
have some ways to understand how quickly you're able to address that plan. These are these outcome metrics that you're talking about. Make sure you pulse check the team so that they understand, you know, how they're feeling about the work that they're doing with respect to the confidence of being able to to ship things that are good that will actually meet that customer demand and have them just talk to the customer. Like that's really it. And it sounds like a lot of common sense, easy stuff. But I guess as we've learned from you and your experience, this is not easy stuff, especially if what you're trying to do is take the stance of being a leader that is doing it by suggestion rather than incentive mm. and favoring leadership by suggestion, which takes a long time, like you've mentioned, but likely yeah. also is very, very fulfilling and rewarding because people are adopting kind of the same mentality and thought processes that you might have uh, and applying that to the decisions they're making now that they have the ability to make those decisions and they're documented clearly for everyone else. So processes <laughs> are good too. Cool. The processes so, are great. We're going to end with then some a really quick fire questions because I'd love to do this. The first question was, what was the, what is the thing that you appreciated most about the team that you worked with at Reaction? Let's start there. What I appreciated is their openness was at that point, their openness to try out things, even though there was, you know, for, for some more than others, maybe an initial resistance, you know, just encouraging them to try it out and see what happens. It was, it was a great openness to that. And it took, again, it took some nudging, but I think that's what I, what I appreciated a lot. And then seeing, you know, these, the fruits of all of that labor by, you know, eventually, you know, going back to an early example, by eventually having releases go out every two weeks, by re the release uh, role, the release manager role rotating throughout the team so that anyone could do it. They were just open to, to iterating there and just trying out new things and seeing if they work. And over time also saw the benefits of that. And that's probably, you know, planting these seeds is my, my, my greatest, uh, the thing I'm most proud, I'm proudest of and seeing those, uh, and working with a team that's willing to take these seeds and grow them into something, uh, into a plant, a beautiful plant. Follow on question. What is your greatest dream now? And if you have one, it's associated deadline. This is an awkward question because I neither have a big dream right now, nor do I have a deadline for it. Fair enough. I think that's a fair answer. That's totally fine. And then the last one, which is hopefully good. For engineering leaders that, you know, have been doing this for a while or maybe are new, what would be the greatest piece of advice you think you can give them based on, you know, the summary of all of the things that you've experienced? What is that nugget of wisdom that you'd like to share? I think probably two or three pieces that you know play together one is uh to have curiosity curiosity into you know say you see something odd you see something that feels weird and you go in trying to find out what why that is or what it actually is that's wrong you know a lot of the time as a manager you don't you don't actually know uh, and people will tell you very different things about what they think is going on. And to keep that curiosity and open mind in that way, that, you know, whatever you assume at the beginning was off might not actually be the thing that turns out to be wrong. I think, yeah, that's, that's a very useful one. I think this is where I go back to, you know, debugging as a useful management skill. It's like if you have that curiosity of asking questions, uh, which, you know, I've annoyed people a lot with by asking a lot of questions, but you know, so I simply don't know to just find out what's happening. Uh, I think that's a very, very helpful thing to develop. And I think the thing that goes along with that, you can't have one without the other is patience. You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, patience and things taking a long time. The, the thing that I think frustrates, especially engineers moving into management is that, you know, not everything has an easy fix or you can just deploy a fix and, everything will be fine. You deploy a fix, you wait, you know, four weeks, eight weeks until you actually see uh, if, if it's fixed. And then you need to think about how you will actually find out how it is fixed eight weeks down the line. 
And you just need patience for that. And uh, yeah, that's the, that's the second one. I think the, the third one uh, comes from, you know, painful experience of, you know, working in distributed teams or, you know, working really in any kind of organizations, uh, organization where communication is an issue. And it, that, that is to just to write well, you know, write, write a lot, write well, share a lot of information with your team. I think it's one of the most useful skills that you can have. I personally, I'm a better writer than I'm a talker. And so maybe there's some bias involved here, but I think as a manager, you know, your goal should be consistency and you can have consistency if you don't write stuff down. Because say, you know, say you look at a decision that was made four weeks ago and it was not written down, Four weeks later, people have will have very different ideas of why that decision was made, what the decision actually was, who made it, and all of those things. And so it's you know it's simple solution: write it down, and then there won't be any questions. You can still revisit the decision. There's no there's no uh, no reason why you couldn't. But at least everyone will be talking about the same thing. I think that's a great deal of wisdom. It's not one thing, but it's three. So I'll take it. It's like bonus. Bonuses. <laughs> it's two bonuses. Oh. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the show today, Matthias. I think, gosh, we've talked about a lot and I've learned a lot more about you that I didn't know before, which is kind of interesting and surprising that this is coming out on a podcast. But I'm happy to have learned and I'm glad our listeners hopefully have taken a, a lot of learnings from your experiences as well. So thanks a lot. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, that's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.